1: Hello and welcome to New Books in Asian American Studies, the podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jeannie Lee. Today we have with us Dr. Leslie Bow from the University of Wisconsin Madison. Her new book, Racist Love: Asian Abstraction and the Pleasures of Fantasy, just came out through Duke University Press last year. In this book. Uh, Leslie discusses how race is abstracted and projected onto objects, images, and literature, as well as how fetishistic attraction contributes to anti-Asian bias and even violence. Welcome, Leslie. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Thank you, Jeannie.
1: Thank you. (laughs) Yes. Uh, Before we start talking about the book, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Um, What do you teach and research about?
2: Yeah, so I am first fourth generation Chinese American with a classic immigration story to the United States. And I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, maybe a little bit before Asian American became an identity or an entity. So um Asian American studies was never part of the curriculum that I was exposed to. And that, of course, is my field. I was trained in English and in literature, so narrative literature and poetry as my objects of study. And so my first book is on Asian American women's literature. Um, then the second was a lot more interdisciplinary. It explored how Asian Americans uh, in the U.S. South negotiated legal sec- segregation as neither black nor white. And I think for both of those books, they really are about how people negotiate social status and what's the psychological toll of that. So I've always been interested in the nuances of how power works, whether as uh, part of the patriarchy or uh, through racial hierarchies. And it really has come to fruition, those interests. In this book, we'll be talking about racist love. Um, which deals a little bit more with popular culture and art and visual culture, uh, as they're saturated with racial imagery.
1: Thank you. Um, as I've told you when I first reached out to you, um, even though my own discipline is in Japanese studies, this has this was the best book I had read last year, um, and it's um, I, so. I'm curious, how did you start this uh, book project?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I I started um, this book with my teaching at the University of Wisconsin, which is a primarily white institution where students are actually required to take a course in ethnic studies to graduate. So when I first came to Wisconsin, I noted that students were pretty resistant to taking that requirement until their senior year. They saw it as a kind of hoop to jump through. And so it was not so much resistance, but a kind of reluctance, right? And even among Asian Americans. And I thought that was really ironic because a lot of the students that would come to my classes were wrapped up in fandom of things like BTS. They were members of the anime club, their romantic partner was Asian, or they just had Chinese for dinner. And I was really puzzled about that effective emotional disconnect. And I thought, huh, I can kind of work with that. So the book really began with ideas that you could harness that intimacy, the desire in Asian things to get at the idea of racial pleasure as it unveils political structure. And I think the ready Asian American students, especially were ready to go with me into that moment because so much of what inflames our cultural moment here in the United States really is about, oh, interracial dating, cultural appropriation, ethnic Halloween costumes. And so when I started researching the idea of racial pleasure, what I found was not necessarily what I expected.
1: So, um, the book cover was one of the first things, well, obviously, the, the first thing that attracted me to get to reading this book. What's the story behind this book cover?
2: Yeah, so the back of the book shows, I mean, the front of the book shows the back of an Asian woman's head, showing only strands of hair detailed in charcoal. And so this is um, a detail from a self-portrait by uh, uh, Hong chung San's triptych. It's called Three Graces from 2010. And basically it's a self-portrait of her and her two sisters as creatures made entirely of hair. And it was part of the Smithsonian's um, portraiture exhibit in Asian American portraiture. And so one of the things that immediately I thought of when I was looking and I, why would you do a portrait as the back of a head? And it reminded me of this story, which I thought was very much about race fetishism, fetishism. It was a white man told me the story about how he met his Chinese wife. And so he went to China and attended a concert where he saw a woman playing a violin and he fell in love with her, even though he could only see the back of her head. And I always thought, you know, he was telling me that story because he thought it was an incurably romantic story. And I thought, wow, that's really kinky. It was basically the hair was all he needed to invent this fantasy woman and the fantasy of China filled in the rest. So at one level, the book really is about and the cover really is about um, the idea about how things, in this case, the eroticism of this Asian woman's hair, incite fantasy. And that's really the foundation of it. And of course, there's always a complication so that, you know, the artist herself would not read her artwork as a sign of race fetishism. It was really about imagining herself as part of almost faces collective of women, of her sisters. And so to me, it was really important to put that on the cover, not because it was a symptom or sign somehow of the race fetish, but because it was supposed to be a self-portrait that was not individual. It's supposed to be collective. And so I think that that cover really gets at Two really different readings, you know, the race fetish reading, but then also the complications for Asian American spectatorship.
1: I I really laughed out loud when I when I read to that part of the book because I have heard um, many people, non Asian people, complimenting Asian hair and say they they, they say they say um, things like this only to Asian women. Oh, you have beautiful hair. But um, often I wonder whether they say that because they were Asian or because of just their hair. Um, but that's uh, another, um, it connects to another point that you made uh, in other parts of the book that we shall get to later. So, so yeah. I and
2: ask, yeah, yes. I was just gonna add, he, there are very few signs that convey that notion of Asianness and it's that sticking of the tr- one trait One reduction, it's hair, skin, and eyes. And those are the only three.
1: Thankful truth. (laughs) Yes. Now, um, relating to that, many people might ask, How can love be racist? And I've actually heard this many times when I try to point out to my friends that some of these, um, as you say in a book, Asianized objects are racist. And my friends would just say, oh, no, it's because people love these Asian culture um, aspects. But how can we understand racist love and racist hate as the two sides of the coin, to quote you?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question because part of the claim of this book is to really explore the way attraction serves as the very form of anti-Asian bias. And I know that sounds paradoxical, but for many of us, you can tap that paradox intuitively so that anyone, anytime someone compliments your culture, you have a queasy feeling. And that, and, and my question is why? Like, why would you have a queasy feeling? With a compliment. So part of the answer is that the title, my title, Racist Love actually comes from an essay by early Asian American writers, Frank Chin and Jeffrey Paul Chan, who wrote an essay called Racist Love in 1972. And so one of the things they say in that uh, essay is really about the nature of racial stereotyping. So they said, quote, each racial stereotype comes in two models. The unacceptable hostile black stud has his acceptable counterpart in the form of Step and Fetch It. For Fu Manchu and the Yellow Peril, there's Charlie Chan and his number one son. There is racist hate and racist love. You know, and and those are kind of old, you know, uh, racial stereotypes that some of my own, you know, younger students don't have, uh, you know, access to. But really they're saying, okay, so the stereotype represents whether it's positive or negative, two sides of the same coin because The stereotype is still the stereotype, you know. And so if we're familiar, or many of us are, with the racial stereotypes that produce negative feelings, right? Fear of a people, hatred of a people, repulsion about a people. And it's very easy to recognize the harm, right, in that form of generalization. And I'm kind of like, well, what about the dark side of racial pleasures? How is Asianness a conduit of desire in U.S. culture, but yet still adheres to the logic of the nature of the stereotype, right? So that's a phenomenon that Bell Hooks, who is an African-American theorist, herself called eating the other when she was talking about the consumption of racial difference within the United States. And I really wanted to move then to shift away from the content of that pleasure, to think about race as inciting a very specific desiring structure that enables positive feeling. And really what that unexpectedly brought me back to was the structure of the stereotype where a generalization is really based on a reduction of traits. And that's why I mentioned like hair, skin, eyes, for example, but also their exaggeration, right? Hair, It erases your entirety of your individuality, and that's what people see in the context of race fetishism. Now, um, the deep dive then that I did for this book was really to kind of understand what the cognitive processes of how people classify groups by visual appearance
1: Indeed. Very well said. Um, Now, why did you choose to focus on objects? um, Well, object human and object human relationship to examine these uh, kinds of Asian abstraction? Because you're so in the book, you use a lot of images of all these uh, um, Asianized objects. And I have to admit every time I turn the page to the next um, image of the object, I, I cringe so bad because of the kind of abstraction. Um, so what drove you to focus on these objects and how and the, uh, as you said in the book, um, object human relationship?
2: Yeah, so the cringe things of this book are cartoon animals dressed up as Asian people. They are Asianized robots, either real robots or media fantasy ideas of AI and artificial intelligence. They're household objects with little slanted eyes painted onto them. And so these are the, what I'm calling like the substitutes or the proxies for Asian subjects. They're not people. They're trucked out anthropomorphic objects that have made or they're made to look like Asian and Asian-Americans. And so the reason that I started with that, uh, objects and not people, was because I really was thinking a lot about Freud's notion and theory of the fetish, right? In which the object is kind of the stand-in for the woman as a whole, and the object becomes a source of arousal because it's that which uh, renders her castration acceptable. So that's like, you know, very deep, you know, theory of of fetishism. But then I was thinking more deeply about, well, then how would a theory of object substitution then enable us to think of it in the same way, in a racialized way? Because what? The fetish is supposed to be about is transforming something that is fearful or something that makes you anxious into a source of desire. That is the desiring structure of the nature of the fetish, right? To transform anxiety into arousal. And I think, you know, for me, you know, reducing the thing that you fear into a fixed object that you can love that is small and containable. Well, that's also how uh, racialization works as well. That's how the stereotype works. So the things in the book kind of function like racial fetish objects in their abstraction and their racial abstraction. But here it's not simply about Um, eroticism or arousal, but other forms of what Sayanai would call positive minor feelings. You know, the feeling of humor, the feeling of affection, the desire to take care of something. And to me, I wanted to connect those positive feelings also to the idea of anxiety surrounding race in the United States.
1: Now to go back to um, what you mentioned in the beginning, um, you discussed in chapter two, um, the use of racial representation in children's literature. So uh, what are some problems that have existed in children's books and how do you think they reflect the racial bias towards Asian Americans?
2: Yeah, so that chapter... um... Looks at, begins with uh, children's literature in the United States and starts with the idea of the use of ethnic caricature. in animals, specifically the way in which children's books might dress up animals to convey um, other forms of people, right? So the, one example, which is Richard Scarry's Busy, Busy World, in which, of course, if it's an Asian elephant and a Bengal tiger, they both have to be wearing turbans. And that's pretty much an egregious, cringeworthy form of ethnic caricature. Um, But to make that a little bit more complicated, there's more contemporary progressive children's books that really try to remedy racial prejudice by... Teaching them resilience in the face of bullying, and they use animals to enlist. For example, uh, Asian adoptees to help them feel, you know, a sense of belonging in their new families, even though they don't look similar to their adopted parents. So, in rather than putting those in racial terms, they put those in species terms. You know, like just because you're a panda doesn't mean that we, your polar bear, love you any less. And so, I wouldn't say it's a form of bias as much as it's an attempt, well-meaning attempt at a form of care. You know, how can we invoke physical differences among species to make a racial point among peoples? And I think those good intentions sometimes go a a little bit awry. You know, they're supposed to be saying that uh, how you look doesn't matter because we still love you. And That's a little bit of whitewashing because they're not dealing with race. They're dealing with puppies adopting cats, you know. And so they're using biodiversity as a way to convey multiculturalism. Right. But the authors don't realize that using species difference to describe human beings really harkens back to eugenics. Right. You know, the idea that the human um, species, uh, uh, human race had evolved into different racial species is, you know, kind of a continuation of that logic. Um, also kind of ignores the fact that children actually don't make the leap between raccoons and human beings. So the substitution is really for adults. And it was really trying to think about what are the unforeseen consequences of that kind of abstraction, using animals to talk about race.
1: And to follow up on that, um, um, I was wondering why... um would you say this is more problematic when it happens in children's literature? Because as you point out in the book, um, younger children do not really have this sense of different races. They don't really perceive um are the kids in the classroom that way it's the adults it's the authors of these books that have these this kind of perception of different races so how um what, what kind of problem does it create when this kind of racial representation appear in children's books
2: I think, you know, part of the challenge with educating the young, and and, ve- and these books are very well intentioned. They're trying to head that idea of, of bias and prejudices associated with physiognomy, right? How you look and how you appear. You know, they really are attempting straight, in a straightforward way, but maybe also kind of misguided. You know, how do you teach someone to be ignorant, innocent of, um, of, of bias, if people children don't actually have, you know, a sense of racial difference, even at that moment. I mean, they do because they physically see that people are different from themselves, but they don't necessarily think that those differences cohere to classification, right? The way that adults do, and I think it's really tricky because the analogy that I was uh, using in terms of that fine line was really about, you know, you know, if you're trying to teach a child about, you know, sexual abuse without using the word sexual and without using the word abuse, you run the risk of pushing into, you know, a non-innocent, you know, you know, context that a child's not ready, you know, to hear. So I do think that one of the reasons that animals are viewed as a almost like a safety net is that you can raise those you think that you're raising those racial issues through the use of animals, through a really bland message about well, we all look different, but we can still get along. Um, and and to me, it's well-intentioned. And that's the complication. I'm not going to come on and say, no, we shouldn't do that. We shouldn't have those books. But There is an availing of that that is very interesting to me where, you know, in one of the pictures in in the book that I use is a series called Miss Bindergarten's Kindergarten, in which every student in kindergarten is a different animal labeled A to Z. And, you know, I have that picture up in my classroom and I'll say, where's race in this picture? And of course, race, as we know it, isn't anywhere, but it's also implied because what they're trying to show is animal multiculturalism.
1: That's um, that's very thought provoking. It also reminds me of uh, the criticism that uh, the, what was the uh, cartoon Zoo, Zootopia? Yes, I think it, when it came out, it received a lot of um, criticism for that. Uh, but moving on to chapter three, uh, you discuss how the kawaii culture, the, the cuteness culture that we often see in objects that are associated with China, um, this kind of kawaii culture functions as a part of racial bias and fet- fetishism. So how do you interpret these um, objects and the act of, and go to here, of collecting these objects that um, are projected with racial bias?
2: Yeah, so let me first describe some of the objects that I'm talking about in this this book, all of which, the ones that I chose, kind of uh, adhere to the um, aesthetic called kawaii, which is cute style, um, coming from Japan in the 1970s. And so they're little rice bowls with mandarin hats and slanted eyes, or a juicer from Alessi that is also painted with slanted eyes and a con- canonical hat. Um, it's everything from little kitchen timers in the shape of geishas, to tea bag holders, you know, in, in the form of Chinese peasants, to decorative statues of sumos, to even the Harajuku girls' perfume bottles. And so that's my little archive, you know, for this chapter. And it really came about when, you know, I was uh, shopping in San Francisco and I came across one of these objects in a store and it was 2006. And I was really shocked, you know, because to me it was such an obvious ethnic racial caricature of a Chinese person um, that it was very much hearkening back to you know, these objects from the segregation era in the American South, like a mammy cookie jar. Like, why would you create a racialized human being in the form of a cookie jar or a juicer, for that matter? And those historical objects were meant to mock or ridicule African Americans. It was really a reminder to keep people in their place, because it really made no distinction between the servant and, you know, the... the the task, right? So the mammy is your cook, you know, the lawn jockey holds your horse, right? And so it really was a conflation between um, the servant, and what the servant was supposed to be doing for you. And so when I saw this Asian version of that, I was like, Oh, my God, how could they sell that? You know, here and now it's the 21st century. And then the other my other response was equally mixed. I was like, Oh, my God, that Juicer is so cute. I really wanted it. I thought it was so weird. I really had to have it. It's like, oh yeah, that looks just like me. <laughs> and you know, and I think that's part of the the um, complication on thinking through um, cuteness as it uh, is adheres to idea of racial traits in these anthropomorphic kind of figures, <clears throat> because on one hand they incite. Delight—they really spark joy, you know. They're they're kind of delightful, and you makes you want to to hug them or care for them. And it was really there is a dark side to kawaii or cuteness that really is. I mean, and I think theories of kawaii have really uh, laid this bare as well. Um, They incite a form of domination. They appeal to your sense of control over something that is small and helpless and infantile and cute um, that really needs you, but you know that is subordinate to you. And to me, that is the dark side of kawaii and cute things. And when you think of that in racial terms, it becomes a little bit more, you know, pronounced because the question is, then why Asian kawaii anthropomorphic things in the shape of you know, things to help you around the kitchen. Like, what is that about? And for me, from the positionality of the United, how those things circulate in the United States, it's really thinking about, oh, well, it's no accident that those things are being, you know, sold here at the very end of what was called the American century. You know, we're in a global environment of multipolarity. You know, there's a loss of influence among the U.S. and its European allies. And I couldn't help but wonder, is there some kind of impending historical anxiety that makes uh, people in the U.S. want to consume things that are Asian, but they're tiny and they're small and they're easily controlled and they're cute. You know, they're unthreatening. And so really thinking uh, between that and the analogy uh, between some of these segregation era um, objects which are really about um, uh, an expression of of fear about uh, black heterogeneity um, at the end of the civil war.
1: That's very interesting Um, and I, I, Can completely relate to that of the, the feeling of wanting to collect these cute little Asian objects. But then my next question is: If these objects are so um, racially biased, why do Asians and Asian Americans want to collect
2: them? You know, that is a really good question. And it also applies to that historical context that I was just referring to, because the collectibles of African American keys, like Mammy cookie jars are now also estimated to be 80%. African American. So why would you want to collect an object, you know, that is denigrating, right? Or mocks you as a person. And for me, it really comes down to, and I explored this myself because I collect those things. I, you know, like want those things. And I'm like, it's a guilty pleasure, you know, and thinking about that, it's like, well, in part, it's a kind of ironic spectatorship. This is how these people see me. But it, I find that funny. You know, it's so far away from the way that I see myself. So there is a kind of irony attached to it. There is a kind of like control of these totemic objects that takes away their power, right? When I have it, it means something else. But I also think that I don't collect grotesque <laughs> statues of Asian people of mid-century and the 1950s. What I connect to is quite the kawaii aesthetic. You know, I like these little cute things. And I think it also taps into that. What I was saying before about you want something that incite that sparks joy because you have some sense of domination or control over it. Like you, it, it, it's establishes a relationship to you that one could theorize we have to our own pets, like dogs and cats. And so uh, one of my uh, former colleagues here in geography, Yi Fu Tuan, is a father of humanist geography. And he had written actually this book a while back called Domination and Affection. And it's really about why we have pets. And his theory is we have pets so that we, because uh, we're masochistic. We want to have something to order around. And I'm like, well, you never had a cat, you know? But it's, that's why we like silly cat videos because it makes us feel better about ourselves in our control. This episode is brought to
0: you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com.
1: That's um, really thought provoking. I think I'll check out that book um, and also feel bad about having my two little cute puppies But um, despite this depiction of this association of Asian American and cuteness, Asia uh, or Asian America is quite often also associated with technology. Um, So in your next chapter, you tend to uh, what you call techno-orientalism. So to begin with the simplest question, why are there so many robots or AI that are in the form of Asian female?
2: Yeah, so this was a very delightful chapter to, to write because it really is about speculative media and fiction, but also about uh, AI and real robots. So to, to begin to answer that question i would acknowledge that the one one reason that um these actual robots look asianized is that they were actually made in japan you know or china or south korea so there's one answer you know to that however i would also say that western and european media and U- u.s media and literature is also also obsessed with ai embodied ai um not just as asian and female but young bodily normative you know and attractive asian females and so then the question is like why if ai does not need a body why do we often so so often imagine ai in that one form like what what's the the reason that we get from that you know and i think in part it, it is is about the fetishism of asian women in the west which adheres to the objectification of women right Here's an entity that is less than human, right? And that ties into the notion of sexual objectification as well, right? A sense of control or, or superiority over the thing, you know, someone whose gender or youth or race becomes shorthands for a lack of agency, right? A thing that can be dominated. Now, That also is related to the Kwaii notion of, of cuteness because being Asian and female in this culture is also a form, an embodied form that incites both violence as well as a tendency to care. And uh, in other words, racist hate and racist love. And we see that in the spate of hate crimes within the United States, uh, particularly uh, uh, against those who are most vulnerable in American culture, elders walking down the street or young women, you know, taking the subway, right? And, and you know, the question is like, well, what then do people see when they see that, that configuration? You know, is it that they see this uh, object, that can be controlled that is supposed to do you know be be under your control but you're also kind of afraid of it so when you think about ai or robots imagined as asian women you also think about the notion of sexual slavery in the context of the world you know world you know so human trafficking really puts in the united states it really is a singular, you know, Asianized female young woman. And and so we're not talking even about children or, you know, other, you know, forms of sexual slavery, but that association is part in answer to why we imagine uh, AI and robots as Asian women. Um, But I also think that it is like, here's a being that you think that you control, but you're also slightly afraid of, you know? And so that's, I think my answer to that. And then, you know, the complication is that, it, you know, that embodied form in speculative media and fiction can also kind of make us rethink ideas of sexual consent. And I think in some of the chapters, when you think about, you know, here's an object or here's the thing that's made for human use, and it kind of, you know, really pushes. You know ethics about then what human beings do we use? Who actually does have consent? You know, so I think you know it, it kind of goes in each chapter in but all the chapters I'm trying to do a kind of dual you know pronged thing. You know, is talk about the problem and the foundation of that problem through the thing, but also how would we been how would we begin to complicate it.
1: And through these, um, uh, I guess we go back to the point about racist love and racist hate. Um, and you just mentioned that the, the line between the love and hate is a very blurred one. Um, well, where do we draw the line? if Or is there even one, do you think? And I guess more importantly for... Um, Asian Americans or Asians in America, I don't quite know the difference, honestly, Uh, I'm not um, super familiar with the language um, used now. But what does this mean, this racist love and racist hate for Asian Americans who struggle to comprehend the Asian fetishism around us?
2: Yeah, that that is one of the complications, you know, about racial spectatorship. It's like, it behooves you to know how you are seen when you are in the United States, which has to do with Asian American history, right? And the history of US militarism in the 20th century, you know, abroad. And so You know, Asian American studies is about social justice. You know, it's a field of knowledge that really had its foundation in intervention and activist roots in in, implicitly in ethics, you know, as well. And so, you know, part of my agenda goes very much in keeping with the roots of Asian American studies, where, you know, I want I do want to understand Asian anti-Asian bias in a in a deep way. Um, And that said, here's the interesting part of this book for Asian American spectators, which is the question that you're asking, is like, well what well what are we supposed to do, you know, with that knowledge. And, you know, I've thought about that a lot because I call myself out in that book quite a bit, you know, because I like that racist tchotchke. I own that juicer that is a caricature of myself. And so, you know, one day I was talking about uh, race fetishism in one of my classes because we were talking about David Henry Wong's A Great Play in Butterfly. And student was going to write her paper about that um, play, and so we were talking about race fetishism. She said, "Oh, can you remind me again why that's wrong?" And I, <laughs> that question just caught me up short because I was like. Well, I don't really see myself as enforcing some kind of morality, a sense of right and wrong, you know, in my work. And I'm also very self conscious, like, no, if I say that's wrong, you're really judging somebody else's sexual practices, you're judging their desires, you're judging their, you know, objects of desire. And, you know, as an educator, that Your moral code is your moral code. I'm like, that's not what we're talking about here. Um, and that's where, you know, like for this notion of complicated spectatorship, you know, I would say for Asian Americans, if you want to graft off what you see as positive feeling as a compliment, you know, go for it. But it behooves you to know how racialization works and the way that it works, the way that pleasure works. This is what I found that I was not expecting to find was that fetishistic reduction that creates a sense of desire. I fall in love with someone's back of their head, you know, their hair works akin to the stereotype. It's just the, you know, positive feeling and not negative feeling that's generated. You know, so I think in answer to that question, why resist the racial fetish? Well, it's a reduction of your personhood, right? To a very small number of stereotypical tropes or associations or physical body parts that really are about being the fantasy of someone else. And if you're content with that, go for it, you know, but understand that race fetishism has the same roots as racial violence and racial profiling. And that hate crimes also stem from that same logic. And the logic is everyone who looks the same behaves the same. What's true for one is true for all. The fact that you're now representative of some fixed notion of your group, of people who look like you, is how stereotypes work. And so that's not a judgment on what you do with that knowledge. It's not a judgment on how you as an Asian American react to that knowledge, but it actually behooves you to have it, right? Um, So love your toys, you know, (laughs) love your little touchy things. Understand that it's really kawaii and this cuteness that makes you look like a baby, you know, that makes you love like tiny, small things, But at the same time, you know, know why that is, you know, that whole style is geared to that. Um, You know, it's not about putting borders around, you know, if you have a racial type, own it understand it, right? And so that's, I think, the other part of of racist love that is, as you point out, a huge complication, because we all have different reactions to the racial structures that we're enmeshed in. We can't will them away. We can't pretend they don't exist. We have to understand them in order to live within them, right? And everyone has a different tolerance for that.
1: Thank you for saying that. It's, I think it's, or at least on a personal level, it's very important for me to hear that um, as well. Now, with the recent um, ongoing policy changes in some U.S. institutions, um, how do you think, and I promise this is the last question, um, how do you think um, in higher education or in educational institutions in general, we can teach about Racial theories or um, ethnic theories in effective way, while facing all these pressure um, from political agenda that or or from beliefs that uh, don't agree with
2: teaching about these. Yeah, that that's a million dollar question, and I, and for me. I teach in a primarily white institution, in a state you know that that has its own you know complications and histories around some of the issues that you're talking about, and so there is a sense of carefulness. I think that even just articulated in the last question, it's like, you know what? If you listen to me, if you read my book, if you listen to my lectures, if you take my class you know, for me, it's like your value system is your value system. However, part of being an educated person is not to ignore that collective and political structures govern all our choices, whether we see those structures or not. They're gender, they're about sexuality, they're about racialization, they're about economic hierarchy. You can have students who come to you and they don't want to see those they want to see that everything that they do is a result of their individual choice that's part of the challenge of doing critical race theory within the united states that it's all going to come down you know to individual agency and what you choose to do and what you don't choose to do in the meantime what i think has been effective about the writing i do and the teaching i do and the work that i do is really to say, look, you know, I'm not teaching you right or wrong. It's not my goal to make you feel guilty or 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 not guilty or make you feel like you know you're you know, um, oppressed or, or or oppressor. Right? Those are very simplistic equations, and everyone's going to have you know that sense of righteousness or a sense of defensiveness. You know, and it's not only about racial issues. It's economic issues. It's about sexuality. This is the moment in culture that we are in, where feelings attached to those formations are really, really pronounced. However, this is an intellectual discipline. You know, it's about making visible the political structures that surround us, whether or not you want to see them, you know, and just because you don't see them doesn't mean they don't exist. You know, and for me, that's really the carefulness of you know, like okay, I, I do have a point you know that I want to make that is about collectivity, but it's also about a very fundamental um, set of processes, and this is what I found in in researching this book. How do we classify peoples in ways that make the world meaningful to us, right? And. The baseline of what I do is trying to make under, people understand, you know, how that process happens, um, and I think there is a certain carefulness about it, right? But I also think that externalizing the notion of, well, I'm not trying to like get in your head and start kicking your brain and your feelings really hard. It's really about let's let's talk about political structure. And the way that artwork and that literature and that movies and these little like, things that you collect that you love are also conduits to thinking about something global, something that about bigger you know, than yourself. And it's not to make you feel guilty about liking Thai food. It's not to make you feel guilty about liking Asian women, right? You know, no judgment. Let's not say that that's what we're about. And I think that's what's really important for people to know. It's like it's not my opinion. You know, it's like we're talking about um, hierarchical structures of social status. Um, So that is a really good question. I'm not answering it in any way that would be satisfactory to to some people who are governors of certain states. But there you go. Yes, indeed. Well,
1: thank you so much for your time, for joining us today, for, for writing this book and for for working on what you work on.
2: Thank you. It's been a real pleasure, Lee for for being here today.
1: Thank you. And for our listeners who want to learn more about the love and hate in Asian American representations, make sure to check out this new book, Racist Love, Asian Abstraction and the Pleasures of Fantasy by Leslie Bow. It's currently available in paperback, cloth, and ebook. This is Janie Lee from New Books Network. Stay tuned for our next episode and see you soon.